You are listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM and streaming online at kboo.fm. KBOO Community Radio and the Jazz Society of Oregon are proud to present the 43rd Annual Cathedral Park Jazz Festival broadcast July 14, 15, and 16 at Cathedral Park in North Portland. KBOO will begin the live broadcast Friday at 4.30 p.m., and Saturday and Sunday's broadcast will get underway at 1 p.m. That's the 43rd Annual Cathedral Park Jazz Festival broadcasting Friday, July 14, Saturday, July 15, and Sunday, July 16, here on your community radio station, KBOO Portland. Support for The Dirt Bag comes from cable listeners and from One Green World, a family-owned nursery and garden center located in southeast Portland, providing fruiting trees and shrubs, berries, vines, unique citrus, nut trees, vegetables, and much more to people all over the United States. Information at www.onegreenworld.com. You're listening to KBOO Portland 90.7 FM. The time is 11 a.m. Next up is The Dirt Bag. It's 11 o'clock on the second Wednesday of the month. The intersection brings us to the dirt bag. Good morning. This is Glenn Andreessen here beside you now until 12 noon. And to my right and to our listeners' center (laughs) is Jim Gilbert. Good morning, Glenn. Glad you could make it in. Good to see you as usual. A A full program we have in front of you here, including some new developments for Jim's documentary. We'll get to that. And you know what's most exciting is we're here live in the studio, and that means people can actually call in with gardening questions. 503-231-8187. That's the number to call if you have a question. And to answer our garden stumper at the bottom of the hour. Before that, though, we will take a look at apricots. And a continuation, we didn't get to our dirtbag dictionary term of last year, geez, last month, and that would have been humus. And so I'll just give a little bit uh, talk about that, and maybe the, the take-home message from humus is, is one reason, humus is one reason why we can't really buy our way to fertile soil. We can fertilize our soil, but to actually have fertile soil, 
we need humus. And so how do we get there? Just a, just a brief talk about that. Also because I am in the midst of perhaps the best honey year in decades. I thought I'd give you a little primer on how nectar becomes honey. Mm. Mm. Oh, yes. So, mm. so how sweet. Very, very delicious. How sweet it is. Yeah. That's right. I'm glad I would give them the phone number again just because I just because I, I would have had tough get time getting that written down. So 503-231-8187. Got it. We didn't have a correct answer for the garden stumper, so Jim will um, enlighten us with the answer of that toughie, apparently. Yeah, it was it was it was sort of an odd one, I suppose, for folks. But since I, I'm, I'm a language student, I always I enjoy learning other words uh, f- huh? from different languages for fruits that we grow here. And this particular fruit is not common, so it's pretty unusual. And the the question was, what is the Korean name for Shizandra vine? And the reason I was thinking about Shizander Vine is because I've just built a 500-foot-long, 7-foot-tall trellis <laughs> <laughs> to train a bunch of them on. And uh, and there's a there's a, in in Korea there's a a Shizandra festival, and that's pretty much fun. And uh, they make a wonderful, delicious syrup from the berries. And anyway, it's a very interesting plant. Well, you might as well just tell us the answer now. Omija. Omija. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So if you looked up Omi, I don't know if you could look it up, Omija Festival in Korea, but that's the Korean name is Omija. Uh-huh. Yeah, if they, you know, maybe we should handicap our questions, and if it's if it's real tough, then they get two free sharpenings. Oh, my gosh. From a hand tool at Coley Farm Store. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good idea. But we're not there yet. No. And then after, at the second half of the hour, we'll talk about uh, summer pruning. That's uh, now's the time. Now's the the prime time for that. Also, how to make syrup. I'm assuming syrup, sweet syrup, out of tart fruits. And we will uh, define perennial. It's a kind of common word, but do we really know what it means? Mm. So that's what, how we'll define it there too. Mm-hmm. And then we'll have some uh, follow-up on Fireblight and Jim's documentary, although we'll get to the documentary soon. But first, uh, just what's a... It's not necessarily annoying me. It's just I'm, I'm puzzled by this. And I, I remember a couple of years ago, I one of the things that was annoying me is was how unsatisfactory the tiebreaker for soccer, big soccer matches, is, where they just kick the ball and try to get it into the net from a set spot and then it's it's essentially comes down to does the goalie guess are you going left or right you know if he falls over or she falls over to the right then and the kick goes to the right then that's likely they can stop it so anyway i i was taken to task somewhat by a listener although he did prove my point i think but uh, so now i have another one though but this is just how crazy it seems in in soccer in that the at least for the Thorns, I just read this headline in the paper the other day that they lost their match and they missed some of their best players because those players had were on to a, a world championship uh, or possible uh, team to play for the world championship, whatever it's called this year. It's not the World Cup, but maybe it is the World Cup. <laughs> See how much I follow it. But anyway, that they so the teams continue to play and the records, if they win or lose, still counts in the in the uh, standings. And 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 for comparison, we just had the All Star baseball game yesterday, and you know the so the big stars were taken from their teams, but the teams didn't continue to play games without them. Same was true with football and basketball, and maybe the, maybe mm-hmm. every other sport. I don't know. But anyway, it just seems kind of weird to me. Hmm. Hmm. Anyway, so it's not really annoying me. I just maybe this same listener will say, "Yeah, well, that's just the culture of soccer." And if that's the case, then I I appreciate that. But boy, it's kind of a little unfair to the teams. Well, I never followed soccer. You know, when we when I was a kid, they didn't play soccer in school. Yeah. And I we played, at least here in these United States. Yeah, <laughs> here in Portland, Oregon, and uh, I was into baseball. And there was a I I, I was into baseball. Uh, there was a, uh-huh. a a stadium in Northwest Portland called the Vaughn Street Stadium. Oh yeah. And, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. 
and when they closed it, the la- I went to the last game in that stadium, and I was so really? into it that I went out to every base. I dug up a little bit of grass at each one, and I put it in a pot and planted that grass because I thought I wanted to maintain this huh. this, this leg- legacy of this Fawn Street Stadium. How long did the legacy last? Well, maybe a couple of months, oh. <laughs> as long as the grass was alive. <laughs> you haven't planted a patch of it around your no. every house you've ever lived in <laughs> since then. No. no, no, no. All right. Well, anyway, on with the garden. Yes. Our, the dirt bag, our garden variety show. That's right. And and in keeping with that, uh, part of it is Jim's. We've been following Jim's quest to make a documentary. Well, Jim and Joe. I'm, I, yep. He's been a part of it all since the beginning, anyway. To document the the bill fifty years ago, Senate Bill hundred became law, which it was re- essentially it was, the urban growth boundary lines. It was a radical, revolutionary move by the state of Oregon for, for its in that day. Nothing else has ever happened since in the, in this country. And Oregon is you know has still has this 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 bill which is you know uh, constantly under attack, but it's hanging well, in there. Well, let's just. Know? You know, briefly, let's just talk about this. How how recently it's been under attack, which was you know in the last couple of months. Yeah, what a by the Oregon legislature. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and the governor. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so uh, one bill was passed, which which allows the governor to make an exception to urban growth boundaries, and the urban growth boundaries are what surround our cities and protect our farmland and our ranch land. The governor can t- uh, make an exception for a chip manufacturing plant can expand the urban growth boundary and and cite one on on whatever land that the governor decides it should be cited on. That was not good, but it it was better than the second bill that thankfully was defeated, but it was narrowly not by much, not yeah. by much. And the second bill uh, would have allowed any city in Oregon to unilaterally expand its urban growth boundary one time. Just do it. And without following the normal procedures, there's a procedure you can expand an urban growth boundary. Well, the, but you have to, you yeah, have to go through a process to do it. And and they have to keep a certain number of buildable acres of land uh, within the. I I don't you know this better than I do you know, but every twenty years yep. they it, it gets updated. Yeah, they do a review and 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 you can they can if a city or a town can prove that it needs more land for housing or for industrial use or something that can expand the urban growth boundary. It, but that process is an important one. And the second bill would have allowed basically uh, the, the city to just do it without going through that process. And it was rightly pointed out that there are thousands of acres of land inside existing urban growth boundaries that can be used for building houses. And that was the the, the uh, primary reason for this mm-hmm. was to have more housing. And you know, like which is uh, in itself a, a good a, goal. It's a good However, goal. <laughs> farmland is valuable, and farm and once you've built a house on top of it, yeah. that's it. It's no longer can be farmed. And, I, and right now, it it makes me very sad to drive out uh, south of Canby, which is near where I live, and see another uh, housing development going in on some of the best farmland in the world. Uh, it's yeah. it's a shame, and you know, I. It, I I mean, single-family homes are nice, but uh, you know you can build them in places that already you know where where it's not so in, not so impactful. Well, you had mentioned that uh, before we turned on the the mics that the opponents of the bill to allow this one-time expansion by any city for any reason, the opponents said we've got plenty of opportunities to build already in the city or within the within existing boundaries. That's so. right. That's right. Yep, absolutely, and it's happening. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah we boy, speak, it is. So, yeah, across yeah. from my house, six houses where well, there used to be one. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And I just think it's important to also, you know, just remind folks that you know Oregon is. It's, we have this unique bill, and if you go to Washington, uh, I was just recently in California. It's amazing to see the sprawl, and and it's so it makes me so happy that that this state is has these has these protections, yeah. and that's why. I'm living 40 minutes from Portland, surrounded by hazelnuts, blueberries, vegetable fields. The food that's produced here, right here nearby, is so valuable for us. And um, uh, and and then another thing too. So so one so I'm involved in making this documentary, 
Um, and I've started back in 2019 since I and and I've interviewed people who were around 50 years ago, and also people that have been defending this bill for, since then because it's constantly under attack. Uh, it's 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 I'm in awe of them. I'm so honored to have talked to them. Three of those folks have actually passed away since we started making the documentary, huh. and we have their you know their interviews. Yeah, it's so uh, it's so nice, and and so I want to just tell listeners that you can sign up to get updates on this on the on this documentary. We hope to have it done by the end of September. Uh, it's the the uh, the website is an Oregon story. AnnOregonStory.com. Okay. And if you can go to the, go there, you can sign up, and we'll send you uh, updates as the, the as the the film progresses. Okay, Jim. Thanks for the update there. Ty tells us we have a call. A call for Jim. Okay, I'll go get a cup of coffee. <laughs> Wait a minute, I don't drink coffee. I'll stay. Go ahead, caller. Jim. Hi. Is it Jim? This is Jim. Hey, Jim. This is. Carl from St. Paul. Hi, Carl. How are you? Well, I'm doing so, great. Yeah, how are you? <laughs> good. My first thought was, or, you know, when I, I hear on the radio from time to time, but I, my first thought was I wanted to ask you how your biodiesel tractor was doing. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we've we have every, we have more than one of them, uh, and they're still functioning, and uh, and we're very happy. Although, right now, I'm on a quest for an electric tractor. I I I want to oh. find a reasonably priced small electric tractor, and sadly, they're lim very limited. So I hope that changes soon. Well, you may have to make one for yourself, though. <laughs> <laughs> if you have any that's tips, what, that's what some farmers do. They just figure it out. Um, and then I'm glad you brought up the land use thing just because it's kind of frightening because there's so many people that live here now that have no idea what is what it is and why it is and but I'm just glad and it the one thing I always think of about that is my dad said that his grandpa that was kind of a progressive person over there in St. Paul, he used to he it used to drive him crazy when people would build their house right you know like in the middle of a field or something, and they still do it today. Farmers do uh-huh. when when you know they could build their house over on that hill or whatever that's not prime farm ground, but it yeah. is what it is. Yeah, that's a good yeah. point. Carl, one of the worst things that's happening is people building very expensive houses on farmland. Uh, when they build like what we'd call a McMansion on a 20 or 40 acres, pretty much puts that piece of property out of sight for for anybody that would be norm, doing normal farming. It just makes it too expensive. So, yeah. And Carl, I would encourage yep. I would encourage you to go onto that website I mentioned, anoregonstory.com, and and uh, and sign up for updates on the documentary. Uh, we'd love to s- share it with you. Good. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, thanks for the call, Carl. Thank you. Okay, well, let's uh, get into the farmland now. <laughs> Away from the documentary uh, now, but anoregonstory.com. Uh-huh. Okay, well, you want to give us a... Uh, well, why don't I talk about uh, humus here, and then we'll come back to the plant of the month, give you a little break there. Sure. Uh had a garden stumper question a month or two ago about the answer turned out to be silt, a certain ty- type of soil mm-hmm. that we might mm-hmm. uh, quantify it as, and it had quite a discussion, but we didn't really get to the, to the humus part, and this is not to be confused with hummus, which is what you <laughs> put on your crackers. That's good, Glenn. I'm glad you made that distinction. I wouldn't want to be putting humus on my cracker. I don't yeah, think so. and they're 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 spelled differently. Just that's right. One M in humus mm-hmm. and two in hummus. There's no hummus in our humus. Oh, there could be. <laughs> because just briefly, uh, you know how uh, humus is defined is it? It's kind of the or how I define it is kind of the end result of the composting process. There's not really much more composting to, that can happen. That is, nutrients can't be extracted from it by fungus or bacteria. And yet it remains a, 
a non-digestible part of the soil, which is excellent at absorbing water and providing space, and it contributes to the tilth of the soil, that is, the quality of the soil. And you can't really buy humus. They can't produce it in a lab. It has to go through the natural processes. So it's kind of the at the end of the composting process. You know, after about two years, compost is not really compost anymore. It's humus. <laughs> so if you want the full benefit of compost, harvest it before your two-year period is up. But still, adding it to the soil is a, a wonderful uh, a, a component of it. But it takes time to get incorporated into the structure of this of the soil, so that's humus. Okay, sounds like good stuff. <laughs> it is, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, money can't buy it. Yeah, so some, you have to earn it. There's some things in life like that. Yeah, you know? I mean, you can you can you can, as as I've said, you can't fertilize your way to fertile soil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Con- contemplate that one for a little bit. Yep. All right. Well, uh, now let's get back to apricots. Sure. It's our plant of the month. Yeah. And yeah. and the way Jim proposed this one to me, and we, we've covered apricots before, but not for uh, a, a while. And as Jim said, they're they're hard to grow here, yep. or they're hard to get fruit from. Actually, they they grow pretty. All right. So, so just thinking about apricots for a minute, my mouth starts to water. Mm. I really, really would love to eat a ripe apricot. Yeah. Now, uh, you eat the skin on it, don't you? Oh, oh, oh of course. The, oh, man. The right under the skin thing. is the sweetest part. Oh, so good. But, you know, I, I would imagine that there are probably a number of listeners who have never really or have very rarely had the opportunity to eat a fully ripe apricot. What you buy in the mm-hmm. store that that in, in all appearances is an apricot is is a far cry from what a fully ripe one is like. And <coughs> Now, it, just excuse me, sure. uh, pardon my interruption here, but they do ripen off the tree. Is that correct? No. No. No, okay. No. Not not like, I mean, they get soft eventually, but the flavor oh. never, never becomes the full flavor of a ripe apricot. So it has to be like kind of like, a, it's not like an apple. More like an apple in ripening than a pear. Yep. Okay. Yeah. A peach will ripen. Yeah. When it's, if you pick a peach, you pick, that's, they're much easier to handle that because you, know, you can pick them firm and then yeah. they'll ripen off the tree, but an apricot won't. And uh-huh. so, so uh, a fully ripe apricot is very hard to ship. Duh. Right. That's why what's in the store, duh, <laughs> comes uh-huh. is, not, is not ripe. And, and the reason, that, the reason that, it, that it's not is because they can't, here in our area, you can't grow them here easily, if at all. And, and and by this area, I just want to clarify: we're talking about west of the Cascade yes, Mountains. Yes, yes, yeah, where it gets where we have lots and lots of rain in the spring, which is the death knell for apricots. And and I and if there's a listener out there that gets has an apricot tree that's producing <laughs> yeah. apricots here in the Willamette Valley, I would I would I'll treat you to lunch. <laughs> well, <laughs> you and I and, you. and, and uh, Joe one time went to this. It's a Portland Heritage tree over there yeah. on 18th, and you took some cuttings. But I think what you uh, reported back was that none of them yeah. su- survived. And, uh, I'm going to try it again. Okay. We have we got some from another tree in Portland too. Years you know they've been a very old tree, uh-huh, uh-huh. but in terms of actually bearing fruit, it's uh, they're 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 not they're certainly not like an apple or a peach or a cherry or any of the other things we take for granted so so they're tough they're tough to grow here and and you know it's it's so what we do to get ripe apricots we drive two hours east <laughs> and if you go to Biggs Junction Highway 97 across the Columbia River there's a fruit stand on the other side and there's an apricot there's apricot orchards along the Columbia River and and then and then the trick is is to ask the people at the fruit stand for seconds. Uh-huh. Now they, now the first may be okay, but the, but what they consider a second, I consider to be a primo. Are they if, more ripe? Yes. 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 Yeah. The, the ones yeah, that are yeah. that are soft and and juicy and and just outrageously good. <laughs> are, <Yeah. laughs> so our the the essence of our plant of the month is as well. Don't even try it here in Portland. <laughs> go, go to the west or the well, east. We're, we're still working on it. Yeah. See, this is a project yeah. we started about seven years ago, and we planted over 100 varieties, and we planted a bunch of seedlings, and we're still 
you know, we still, their hope springs eternal, and there are some that are doing something that looks optimistic. Okay. And so we still have hopes. But generally, so my partner Lorraine would say to me, I'd say, you know, gosh, I really want to get an apricot, but they're all dying. He said, the trees. He said, well, that's data. I said, well, you can't eat data. <laughs> so, But hopefully you won't plant those again. <laughs> or oh, no. offer those up for sale. <laughs> no, no, and that and that's you know, and that's what yeah. we that's what yeah. we've done is, is that's be, our point. Yeah, you know, let's let's work on getting something that will it may hopefully will work. Maybe even a hybrid, yeah, that might work as well. Yeah, but apricot is tough to grow here. Yeah, and you could, but you, of course, if you did, if you have a greenhouse or someplace where you can keep it from the from the spring rain, what what the problem is is when it they bloom. They bloom fairly early, but even the late blooming ones. Let's say they're blooming in uh, late March. Well, uh, last several years, late March, it's raining and it's cold rain, and and that just doesn't work. They, yeah, they it really hurts them. Well, so not to be Debbie Downers, but yeah, that's so, the way it is. Yeah, but I learned that apricots don't ripen off the tree. I should. Yeah. I just need to get a list, a going list, and so because it's more in line with blueberries. Oh, they'll. They don't ripen after you pick them. They'll soften and they might color, but they won't ripen any further. And that's the and that's the the so the beautiful thing about growing your own fruit. Even you know apples, you mentioned apples. You know they they don't really ripen after you pick them, and and sadly commercial apples are picked so unripe yeah. that they don't have the flavor that the homegrown one does. And I, I am I think I maybe I mentioned in the last show we're still eating apples yeah. from our tree that we stored. We we picked in October and they're still okay. That's incredible. Here's our mid July. Well, we have another call, Jim. Okay. What do we got? They're still on the phone. Uh, am Am I on the air? Yes, you are. Thanks for calling. Good morning. Good morning. Your your humorous your humorous uh, humor was giving me a headache. <laughs> uh oh. Uh oh. <laughs> no, no, no. That was good. Listen, I just. Um, Love your conversation. Uh, the apricot, the the kernel inside the inside the apricot. There's a kernel. Some people call it vitamin B17. It's supposed to have some anti-cancer properties, but I just threw that out there on a whim. Yeah, I think that's been debunked for more than several decades. It's pretty. It's pretty bitter. I know that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it was. What here. is it? Laetrile. It was, yeah, was part of that, but no. So I, I, I do need to interject for a moment, guys, because the, there are apricots that are grown for the kernels, and in, in Uzbekistan, well, not, but not for a, not, not for cancer treatment. Not for you, cancer. Right, just want to make that just, clear here. To, just to eat them. Yeah, they're they're good. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if they're members of the almond family, or the almonds are all related to well, peaches. And yeah, they're uh, all pretty. They're, they're all they look similar. They, yeah, they don't taste alike, but they're similar. Yeah, they're all, I remember my. Uh, uh, sorry, Jim, I interrupted okay. what you were saying there. Well, they're all prunus. So yeah, genus prunus. So my mother used to make peach pit jelly, mm. and it was delicious. Hmm. Wow, I think it had somewhat of a little almondy flavor, and it was. Because the almond is actually the, you know, the kind of the, the inside the, of the fruit. The pit. Yeah. The kernel. 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 Sure. Yeah, that's good. And then, but it was very light, uh, delicate flavor and color, kind of pinkish. Huh. Oh, did that color uh, come from the ingredients? Yes. Or? Yeah, she oh, wouldn't pretty. diet. I'd, I'd never heard of doing that from, from peach, peach pit jelly. Yeah, yeah. I'll, huh. I'll have to look that up. Okay, I'll, let, I'll let ask her about it. Sure. She's Gentlemen, be. let me throw let me throw something into you real quick, and then I'm going to let you two discuss it briefly because you're the thinkers, not me. <laughs> Listen to this. I live in a, an apartment, right? In an apartment, you have no space for growing anything, right? You you go into the apartment from Walmart, you get your food, right? Listen to this. I did a little research. And there's plenty of land in this country to give every man, woman, and child a third of an acre. Is there's it? plenty of land left over afterwards. Now, here's, here's what I want to uh, have you guys respond to. Instead of being locked up in apartments and so-called affordable housing, how about giving everybody one-third of an acre 
And can I hang up with that thought? And I got to hear your response. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for the thoughts. Yeah. Thank you for calling. Well. Well, it's it, 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 you know it It all depends on his premise. You know. Well, what's is your one third in Arizona, or in the Willamette Valley? Yeah, and you know it reminds me of uh, in my multiple journeys to the so- former Soviet Union. There, uh, people would get a small plot of land. You worked in a factory, you had a dot, what they call a dacha garden, and it could be just a little tiny shack, uh, not even a, something you could live in, and, and a plot of land, or it can be a little house out in the country. And and that, and I've visited many, many dacha gardens. It was kind of, it's pretty neat. Uh, I mean, I, I start, I like the idea. Uh, you know, Americans, unfortunately, you know, maybe, not, you know, I don't know if they, where, where you could, how you could do that here, because our land is pretty much private ownership, and you know who's gonna? You know, well, the United States took a, a different tact in that they didn't give land to the citizens. They gave lands. I'm just talking about one particular part here, to the railroads. Yeah. You know that's why they have this this checkerboard uh, patchwork of you know yeah. ownership by the railroads. Yeah, and of course that wasn't typically farmland. So, well, it could have been. Could have been, but I think it's I mean, mostly like forest land, right? Where they, or wherever they were building. You know, the idea was that they would build their their rails. Then, yeah, it's too bad they don't. You know, when they have these giveaways and things like that, that that they don't come with an expiration date. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I like. I mean, I like the idea, the gentleman. You know, the idea that people, if they if they wanted to have a garden, then of course we'd have to work on our public transit to get people out yeah, to the gardens because yeah. you don't want to have, I mean, this massive <laughs> fill your car, you know, all your roads with cars going out to everybody's third acre. But Well, at least in Portland, we do have community gardens. That, yeah, that's... Although, that's, you know, there's some wait lists on those, but they're making more. That's, uh, I think they're opening some, too. That's good. Yeah, that's a good concept, yeah. for sure. Okay, well, let's see here. Uh, let's... Oh, man, we've just... We went all right by our uh, first musical selection but we'll get it in we'll just do a short part of it since i'm in the the uh honey process processing here and harvesting and whatnot i all the tunes have to do with honey today so the first one is a boy this will get your blood going cold blood actually it's the group on this and this is called all my honey Boy, I hate to interrupt that, but we've got a lot of show to go here. <laughs> Lydia Pence, the uh, lead singer on Cold Blood. Huh. I saw them a couple of times. Like the horns yep. in that. Yep. Yep. Okay. Ty, you ready for our garden stumper? Ty can be ready. Okay. Hit it. Oh, we're coming. Oh, hold on. Nope. Well, we don't really need it here. Okay, well, we'll get to the Garden Stumper right now. Uh, this has to do with... Uh, well, I got thinking about this. There was an article in the Oregonian about uh, one of the agricultural products of Oregon, and so I looked on the Oregon, cultural, or the Oregon Agriculture website and found out that Oregon is the leading producer of several products in the United States. And so I'm going to list a, a list here, and two of them are fake, that is, or they're not true. And the hint on this is that for at least these two, they are not harvested by uh, mechanized means. They are only produced or harvested by hand. So there's a higher labor cost into them. Okay, so they so they what they what I need is the answer is which 
one or two of these is not does not lead the nation in production. Okay? And if you have the answer, 503-231-8187. Blackberries, strawberries, hazelnuts, peppermint, cherries, cranberries, rhubarb, grass seed, floral azaleas, and Christmas trees. So which one or two of those does, does Oregon not lead the nation? But otherwise, that's a pretty good uh, list of Oregon agriculture, speaking of the documentary that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Another interesting thing that I learned that Multnomah is the smallest of Oregon's 36 counties, and yet it still ranks 23rd in the number of agricultural products. <laughs> so that's, great. that's pretty good, too. Yeah. Okay, so if you know the answer to that, 503-231-8187. Hope that wasn't too uh, confusing. All right, a little bit about honey here. How does honey become honey? Well, it starts out as nectar. But how does nectar get from the flower into the, to the hive? Well, bees go out and collect it. And bees are unusual in some respects in that they actually collect pollen too. But while they're collecting the pollen, they can't gather it all in. They, they get it all over their bodies as they get into the flower. And they will comb through their hairy bodies with their back legs and collect this pollen on their legs. And they, they take that back to the hive. But they can't collect it all. And so when they visit another flower, some of that pollen will slip off or be attracted to the to the pistils and we hopefully we'll get pollination out of that but that's not what i'm talking about here that is pollen because some bees collect pollen and then then others collect nectar and nectar is what plants produce the sole reason is to attract these bees that might inadvertently then pollinate their their flowers so the bee will visit many plants gathering up nectar but only of the same variety it's kind of crazy that they won't go to you know if they're on their cherry tree no they're not going to go to the apple tree and but anyway they go back or rather uh, uh, bees have two stomachs they have a honey crop and a regular digesting stomach i've heard i've heard the the digestive stomach the crop also referred to as the social stomach which is pretty good descripting, description because they're going to take that back to the hive and share it with all the, the bees in the hive. But while they uh, have the honey in the honey crop on their way back or immediately, they add at least one enzyme. I should have done a little bit more research on this. I think it's invertase. That will start the conversion of the sucrose, which is what nectar mostly is, into fructose and glucose. So they take that back to the hive where they will regurgitate it to another bee in the hive whose job at this point is to take it and put it up into the hive where they want to cure it. And so once it's in its honey stomach, it also adds these same enzymes. And that's the only chemical change that goes from uh, nectar to pollen. And But the, the other major factor is that when you collect when they collect the nectar it might be we'll say 90 percent water and we need to get that down to 18 percent and so they do a, a tremendous amount of evaporation in the hive in fact it's one of the problems of, of of a hive is keeping the moisture level low because when it's cold and wet in the hive that's not a good good situation but this time of year, you don't need to worry about the cold. So anyway, once they get it down to about 18% moisture level, they put a cap on it, a thin layer of wax. Jim, you've probably even eaten comb, honeycomb. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. it's good. I mean, you don't t- typically swallow the wax, but people do. Mm-hmm. And then that's when I come in. Because when it's time, and now's the time here in Portland anyway... 
to start harvesting the honey and realize that that we put on extra boxes for the extra honey. We don't harvest the honey from their their brood boxes, as we call them, where the bees live year-round. So we our goal is to leave them at least 60 pounds of honey to get through the winter. And, and in my case, it's usually more, well more than that. So we never take honey from the, those brood boxes, as, as we call them. So my first task, after I get the bees out of the boxes, is to shave that wax capping off. And I have a hot knife that does that electric hot knife. And then I, after I get 20 of those frames done, they, they, are all, they all go into the, my extractor, a spinner, where the wax spins out of the comb and it collects on the sides of the, this tank and rolls down to where it comes out of the, the uh, bottom where I put it into a five-gallon bucket, and then I lift that into a, a larger tank that holds about 300 pounds of honey, where I let it sit for a day or two, and all the bubbles and the wax and other things rise to the top. And then I can decant it from the, from the bottom, when, and then I can store it in five-gallon buckets. Hmm. So it's a, that's a pretty slick uh, process. The commercial guys, of course, don't have pumps to pump their honey everywhere they don't have to lift it and whatnot i will mention that i had a most unfortunate experience yesterday when i was when i was decanting and i took off one five gallon bucket and it didn't take very long because the tank was fuller and so i put a second one down there and it takes a, a, a little while for it to you know honey is kind of viscous it takes a little while and i got busy doing something else and came back into the honey house and there was uh, honey, oh, I don't know, three quarters of an inch, and it had overflowed the five gallon bucket oh. under the floor. Oh. Yeah. I think I'm still hoarse for yelling at myself so much <laughs> yesterday. Oh, man. Oh, too bad. Yeah. Yeah. But I was able to harvest uh, or salvage some of it. I'll, I'll use it. Yeah. You know, it, uh, honey is pretty uh, antimicrobial, or it <laughs> is very microbial. So, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, well, that's kind of fun on how honey, ha- nectar becomes honey. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. Honey becomes honey. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. When you think about it, yeah, you know, it's like you know, a bee flying around to a flower. And then, yeah, oh, yeah. You know, so you got a jar of honey. How does that work? So, well, you know, one bee in its lifetime only produces about one twelfth of a teaspoon. Yeah. So I think, oh uh, man, look at all those wasted effort that I did because of those bee that I on my part, you know, from the bees. It's all there on the floor. But. So, so how many bees are in a hive? Oh, it depends. This time of year, there's uh, it's probably not peak season right now, the number of bees. That was maybe three or four weeks ago. But there's probably, uh, oh, in a big hive now, could have forty to 50,000. Wow. I had no idea that. Yeah. Many. There's huh. a lot of bees at my house. Boy. And, and around there. So. Great. Okay. Well, we haven't gotten any answers yet on uh, my stumper there. Maybe I should read those again, huh? I will read them again. Sure. So which of these, t- which one of these two is not on the list of Oregon's? Which one of these two or which or, two w- of one, these? One or two. There's oh. two of them that I added. Got it. And uh, as a hint, neither of them are mechanized picking. So labor. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's see. Blackberries, strawberries, hazelnuts, peppermint, cherries, Cranberries, rhubarb, grass seed, florist azaleas, uh, and Christmas trees. Oh, you know, one other thing here. This has nothing to do with that or anything, but I'm a very big fan of the Columbia County Extension Service newsletter, Chip Buell. He's he's been on many times on the Dirtbag. Great guy. I mean, it's going to be a sad day when he retires. But he just always has nuggets of information that I find interesting. And here's one that I, you know, that makes sense because I've experienced this. And I'm just going to read this here. Onions, and we're talking about bulb onions that are going to be bulbing up. Onions need very even moisture and about nine inches per month at, as the bulbs are forming. If they run short of water, they stop growing and don't restart again. This leads to small onions with the size dependent on when they ran short of water. Huh. You ever grown onions? 
Uh, Onions for bulbs? It's been a while. but it, no, You know, the, the varieties that I grow, I've had them last as long as your apples have lasted. Mm-hmm. I mean, almost a year, the storage onions. Pretty incredible. Well, that's probably why Lake Labish, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, you know, that area down north of Salem was such a popular, uh, and it probably still is, a big onion-growing area because it, because this so, the soil moisture there, I'm sure, is, is a lot more constant. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. It makes sense now, doesn't it? Yeah. Yep. All right. All right, let's go to the phones. Good morning. Wild guess. Good morning. Wild guess. Cranberries. Nope. Cranberries lead ah. the nation. And, and not only do they lead the nation, but they are the best. Because I think New wow. Hampshire and some other states do uh, produce cranberries, but Oregon's are the reddest, so they have wow. the highest okay. value well, too. So, thank, but thank I appreciate it. Stuff. Appreciate your, your wild guess. Okay, we have another call. Okay, is that me? That's you. Good morning. You got a guess? Hey. Uh, well, I dismissed what the last person said, but I'm going to say cranberries. What? <laughs> what? How appropriate. That's what he guessed, too. Oh, okay. well, hey, well, I got you on the line. I want to make sure you guys know that Lydia Pence and Cold Blood are going to be at Jack London August 25th, in case you want to catch them again. Really? But I'll let you go. I'm okay. You show. Great. Thank you very much for that, that, type, that, that tip. I'll, I'm going to check that out. And, you know, just for fun, I've I got to talk a little bit about cranberries because okay. since we've brought them up and we've already disqualified them, they're very uh, widely grown on the southern Oregon coast. Mm-hmm. And, and and the way and they grow, they have what they call a cranberry bog. Now, this is not the way you, you can grow them at home without doing this, but the cranberry bog basically is a is a, an area where they fill with water and the cranberries float in the water, and then they, that's how they harvest them, is, and they pick them out of the water. And, and if I remember correctly, they, they're not grown in water. No. They they're don't. just flooded to harvest them. That's right. And then, they, then they're then they mechanically harvested after they're floating there. Yep. Okay, we have another call. Good morning. You're with the Dirtbag. Yeah, I'd say the uh, floral azalea. <laughs> nope, I'm sorry. That's They lead the nation in those, or we lead the nation in those two. I would have thought California would have, but... Nope, I think it has to do with our cooler climate. Oh, you know, they okay. can grow a lot of things, but they can't grow that. And just to head off at the pass, uh, somebody guessing about the uh, the. Uh, oh, I guess it's not on here. So never mind. I was I was going to say right, that well, they're they're a big uh, uh, Oregon is a big producer, Southern Oregon of uh, lilies, Easter lilies, too. But that they don't lead the nation in that, but. Oh, the, okay. The other thing. Go ahead. The other thing too is I'd like to make folks aware of which uh, Jim there is. Uh, he's an advocate of it. Is turning our farmland into restaurants, etc. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'll leave it. At, I'll, I'll leave it at that, and maybe have a short discussion on that at some point in time. What? Yeah, that's really exactly right on. And be sure to sign up for the uh, the, the documentary. And uh, and what's your name? Dave Hinkle. I'm with. Uh, uh, Talking Earth Farm. Oh, cool! Oh, great. Yeah, that that idea of of uh, other uses on farmland. That's the a big a big issue. And you know, restaurants belong in the small towns where they can improve the economy of the small town. They don't out in the country where people have to drive all over the place to get to them. That's not appropriate for a restaurant. Yeah. Right. That it doesn't really create communities within the community. So not at all. Yeah. Well, th- yeah. Thanks for your comment on that. Uh, all right. Take care. I appreciate yep. your time very much. Great. Thank you. Okay. I don't know if we had. Yes. Yes. We do have another call. Good morning. You're with the dirtbag. Hey guys. Good morning. Morning. Uh, the the answer to your question is strawberries. That's right. That's exactly right. Or that's one of them. Yep. That, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, so off the air here, you can give your name and uh, phone number, I guess, to Ty. And then I will put, pass that on to Coley Farm Store, and you win a free gardening hand tool sharpening. Oh, Pr- cool. Pruners, and by the way, I wish, you guys were on, I wish you guys were on more often. Your program is really nice, and so many people garden and grow things in this area. I kind of wish you were on like once a week. <laughs> by the way. Well, thanks. Uh, what, what was the name of that newsletter? I'd like to look it up. At Columbia. Oh, that Columbia County 
uh, extension service. Just if you, yeah, I looked online and I wound up with Columbia County, Wisconsin. Well, try Columbia County OSU extension. Okay, we'll do. All right. Yeah. yeah good luck with that. It's we'll a. It's a. Find it. It's a. It's a rural. It's more rural too because it after it has the gardening stuff, it has livestock. Oh, too, that's so. cool! I've got a guy with four cows on my property. That'll be interesting. Oh yeah, he's got lots of stuff on, you know, from tansy to watering or whatever for for livestock. Maybe maybe we could put the link to that si- that site on the on the Kibu, uh website. I could try to do that. Yeah, that would oh, that'd be nice. Okay. Yeah, and your okay. your story about the bees was really cool too. Thanks. Well, great. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Yeah, they're fascinating animals, and they're considered livestock too. Thanks for the call. First. Okay, so we got an answer. But the, the other one is... I'm going to guess. Go ahead. I'm going to guess cherries. That's right. <laughs> cherries it is. So and, you know what, and the reason I thought of it is because I, how can you mechanically harvest a cherry? <laughs> I mean, or a strawberry. You know, they just yeah. don't, they don't work very well that yeah. way. Yeah, well, I thought that would be the hint. Yeah, yeah. All that's, right. That's good. Okay, well, let's see. Where are we here? Oh, syrup from the... Uh, mm. Syrup from tart berries. Okay. Well, this is a, this is fascinating to me, and I and I, I when I discovered this process, I'm sure a lot of people know about it, but I discovered it when we when we went to this, uh, well, actually in, in South Korea, when we discovered this is how they were making this delicious syrup from the shizandra berry. I've even you forgotten know, the name of that, Jim. Uh, Omija. Yes, that's yes. the one I forgot. Yeah, yeah got it. <laughs> it's like Ouija board. That's how yeah, I remember it. There you go. Oh, Ouija board. Right. It's it, and it's kind of you know it's it's so unusual and it's kind of like that. But so basically, when we went to the uh, we were we were by our friend. We have a really good friend in Korea who who had gotten this syrup for us, and the way they make it is they basically take uh, the fresh berries. In this case, the shizander berries, but you can do this with other tart fruit. And well, like what other and, tart fruit? Well, Somebody I, asked me that this morning. Sh- sure. Well, I just did it a few days ago with prunus mume, which is a well. Some people call flowering apricot. It's a. It does grow well here. It's not an apricot. It, it's another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the Latin name is prunus mume, and and the. Uh, it's a tart fruit with a really nice flavor, but tart. And so I, I chopped up the fruit. I put it in a jar with, uh, the, so then, then what the, the, this procedure is, you take half by weight of sugar and fruit, so 50% of each. So you weigh it and put the same, you know, I'm okay. sure that's a good explanation. You take an equivalent amount of sugar by weight of, as you have a fruit. Not by volume, but by weight. By weight. Mm-hmm. Put, mm-hmm. It in, put it in a jar large enough to hold both the sugar and the fruit, of course. Put it in your refrigerator. And 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 you stir and you do it. You kind of layer it. I mean, you don't just like put the fruit in and then put the sugar on top. Uh-huh, you you, you uh-huh, kind uh-huh. Of put a little a little fruit, a little sugar, a little fruit, a little sugar. And but you don't need to stir it. Then you, know, you don't need to stir it. I I eventually do just to get it, get a better mixture going on after about a week. But the uh, uh, the the sugar pulls the juice out of the fruit, and and because it's sugar, of course, it makes it sweet. So you ha- then you end up with this really flavorful syrup. The fruit is interesting because the fruit becomes desiccated. It's got, how how does that occur? You know, you put yeah. sugar in, but well, it, the sugar <laughs> the sugar pulls the juice out. Yeah, yeah, and and then you then you pour that off, and you have the and you and you, you want to keep it refrigerated, uh, and, and if you're going to store it for a long time, either pasteurize it or put it in a, a freezer. freezer. Yeah, you know? but uh, but what the most the favorite thing we do with it is to make Italian soda, basically, uh-huh. where we take carbonated mineral water and mix it with this with the syrup. A small amount; it doesn't take very much to give it a f- nice flavor and some sweetness. So what are so, you know, no most people aren't going to be having this apricot or this uh, flowering apricot. Or probably the shizandra berries. Well, yeah. So would you recommend that for other things? I mean, could you just Uh, make regular blackberry syrup out of regular blackberries? Well, that's a good good question. And and the big difference would be it probably, you really don't need to. Uh, I mean, it wouldn't be. Well, just to make the syrup part. Right. But couldn't you just take the blackberries and, and just, well, I mean. Put you know, them in the uh, fridge for a, for a month. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> They're gonna rot. It's a, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I actually haven't tried it. So okay, you know. Um, All right. Um, so other tart berries? Have you? I mean, not tart fruits. I mean, other, like mulberries or mulberries aren't tart. 
Um, but but could you extrapolate it, here and say, well, I just want to make syrup then for my waffles? Yeah, good. I think I, I you know, you're inspiring. I'm going to try it. Okay, I want to try. Well, I want to try. And it. Now, yeah. I, I had an experience here in the last, uh, I don't know, I guess three or four months ago. Now, a woman, elderly, who's been a apparently a longtime honey customer. She she called me, and I even may have mentioned this before, that uh, and she wanted honey. And so she came by, and she left me this very nice note and a little cup jar of, not really a preserve, but I think she called them sugar raspberries. And she left the recipe from this old southern cooking cookbook. And so I made a batch this year because I really liked it. And, you know, I'm a beekeeper. I like honey. So I extrapolate that. I like sweet things. And this little jar that she gave me, these sugared raspberries, the sugar, the granulated sugar, was not dissolved. It was crunchy, mm. but excellent. Mm. So I made some. You know, I would think probably the, the the difference between using a sweet berry and a and a tart one would be the flavor of the exist of the resulting syrup. Because if you if you took a blackberry or a blueberry, you would you know they don't have a real strong flavor. Like, yeah, and so yeah, I don't know what you know, but it would be yeah. interesting to try it. Well, see you're going to have access to berries coming up. I, I guess am, we'll absolutely. Better my try that. I'm getting about 200 pounds of blueberries from my neighbor across right. the street. About, <laughs> yes, tomorrow I think. Well, I want to do a quick, just a, you know, we're, I'm out of time here, but I think we've well, we didn't really follow up on the fire blight, but maybe next month on we, that. Sure. And uh, we could get to perennial. Okay. Do you want to talk about perennial just briefly? Well, I think it's an interesting word because because sometimes yeah. it's used. It, it it's a very broad based word. Perennial means basically forever, grows, forever. You know, grows yeah. all or. the time. And and so when you talk about plants, usually you talk about perennials and annuals, right? And or well, biennials. But there's the biennial too. That's yeah. right. So so if you have a perennial plant, and some people will talk about most people talk about perennials as you know flowering plants. Um, but a, yeah. an apple tree is a perennial. Indeed. You know, and I, I just think it's a, it, it's important to know that word, how how broadly based it is, you know, and what it means. Cause it's just, yeah, in the gardening world, it just means a plant that comes back year after year. Yeah. But not forever. Yeah. I mean, some things have long, long lived, like blueberries can be 50 plus years. And and then there's the, there are perennials like, like maypop passion flower. They're perennial. They die back. Every year, yeah, but they, they come back. They come back, yeah, and and so it, whether it's alive all the time, you know, above ground, or it dies back and comes back, it, it's still a perennial. Yeah, like a strawberry is a perennial. Yeah, I mean, yeah, sure, it sends out runners, so they're kind of being replaced on themselves, and yeah, but but there are other. So I, I, I think I'm trying to think of other. I don't know. Maybe hop, hops die back to the ground, uh huh, come back up again. Yeah, and you know, some clematis do. Yeah. But the fruit, I mean, a fruiting plant, it's unusual. It may pop, like the, I say, that, that Passiflora incarnata. Yeah. That, that's why you can grow a passion flower up north, because the regular passion flowers aren't hardy enough to grow here. But the uh -huh. may pop dies back, and, then it's, and it grows where it gets down to minus 20 in the south places. All right, I'm going to give a uh, one-minute recap on summer pruning. The takeaway is that you take off the new growth, back to where it started growing last year. That's kind of my rule of thumb. Summer pruning is not the time to shape the tree. It's just to prevent it from getting any bigger, essentially, from what it is now. My rule of thumb is you only use hand pruners. So if you have a strong hand, you can take off bigger limbs. That's the subjective part of my rule of thumb. But if the tree is the size that you want it to be, Pruner back to where the new growth came out. Now, as we mentioned briefly last year, uh, month, this is mostly for pears and apples. As Jim smartly pointed out last time, this wouldn't be necessarily the time to be pruning figs or peaches or other prunus, I guess. But apples and pears, which are very common, this is the time. A little later to do that. A little later would be full generally pears. July, yeah. mid July to mid August. Yeah. And so we're almost in mid-July. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I've pruned you know, later into October and have not suffered any consequences. 
and I think I might have mentioned that the pruning of prunus, the pruning of prunus, would be, uh, uh, we do it later in the summer uh, because the, the weather's dry and the, the, the pruning wounds heal quickly. And, and so we're not spreading disease. Right, because we don't like doing it in the winter and spring. <laughs> yes. Spring has its own problems, as we've noticed. And, it's, yeah, it's pretty pleasant uh, now. You know, I don't ever prune a tree. I have one. Uh, it's pictured on the website, the photo that I, I submitted on our website, of me in the middle of all those thousands of cuts that I have to make. Anyway, we're out of time. Jim, thank you. Yeah. Ty, thank you very much, our ace board operator. And we will be back next month live because I will not be at the Scandinavian Festival. And what's the date next month? Do you know? I don't know. I don't know either. Second Wednesday of the month. That's August. it. Yep. Thanks for listening. Be well. You're listening to KBOO Portland, 90.7 FM. The time is noon. Next up is Jazz Lives. You're listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM and streaming online at kboo.fm. Bienvenidos a un breve informativo en su estación comunitaria KBOO 90.7 FM. Hoy miércoles 12 de julio del 2023. La temperatura promedio de la superficie del mundo se ha disparado a su nivel más alto jamás registrado, superando los niveles récord de calor medidos solo unos días antes y el día anterior. La serie de días más calurosos de esta semana se produjo cuando los científicos del clima advirtieron el mes pasado que junio era el mes más caluroso jamás registrado. Con el 2023 en camino de convertirse en el año más caluroso en la historia de la humanidad. Mientras tanto, un nuevo informe